Business as Unusual is a thought-provoking podcast that explores the innovative strategies, disruptive ideas, and unconventional practices driving successful leaders and companies in the ever-evolving world of modern business. Subscribe, comment, and share for weekly inspiration with our host, Aisila. to Business is Unusual, um, and I'm very excited to um, introduce my guest, but I'm only going to say his name, Dan Mela. Now I'm wondering if I said it wrong. <laughs> um, and welcome Molly. to our show. Molly, thank you. You you spread out the pronunciation, and then I was like, no, that must be wrong. I'm thinking of the wrong thing. It's fine. <laughs> thank you. Um, at any rate, welcome to the show. And uh, Business is Unusual, as you know, um, is a place where we bring people on to talk about things that they're doing to create new ways of doing business, which sounds like you are right in the middle of that. So I'd love for you to talk about yourself and your business and what you're up to. Thank you, Aisla. I appreciate that. And it's good to be here with you. Um, so I am the founder of Wholehearted Masculine, which is an organization that is really serves as a center for the discovery and exploration of wholehearted masculinities. And then I'm just today launching my own consultancy, so Dan Molly Consulting, which is focused more on working with teams and organizations, and in particular, supporting white male leaders who are committed to building equitable cultures where everybody can thrive. So that's the work that I most love to do and what I'm up to today. That's, uh, I think, a really important step, honestly, to, to take is one of the things that I was reading, uh, I got a little sneak peek. I got to look at Dan's website, which I'm going to put up here for y'all in a minute. Um, but so interestingly, we did a show on my other podcast um, with a woman, uh, Nita, or Dwinita um, Mosby Tyler. She does national DEI work. And she wrote a book called White People, Do White People Really Love Salad? It's really great. And so we had her on to talk about that. Um, and she was talking about being a young black woman in the segregated South and her family is integrating um, a community. That was part of the, the point of the, the story. But one of the things that she talked about actually was that if people close their eyes and imagine diversity, right? Most of the time, and she was talking to me and my um, co-host uh, who are, were both white. And she said, do you picture white people? Um, and, and she's like, most people don't. <laughs> and that's a real problem. Because um, part of diversity is in, in that larger inclusion piece. And she, and she was really, she's like, when we were making the case in the 80s, um, understandably, we're making the case for the things that we're lacking. And as we often do, don't necessarily also include the things that are seemingly not lacking, right? But still is part of the landscape. So I think it's really important that everyone understand this is a community problem mm -hmm. or and, and needs community solutions if you will as opposed to these people over here aren't okay like <laughs> so right. that's why I have, like when you were when I was reading that I was remembering her conversation about that and her experience 
And and she comes at it from a different perspective, obviously, because she's different life experiences. But in a lot of ways, it's similar to say that saying, hey, we, we're all part of this. We all need to be contributing to creating something that works. So yes. I'm curious a little bit, like, are you, I mean, you, I know you have some stuff, but what what awakened you to this concept? Hmm. Well, first of all, I really love Nita's work and especially her TED talk. That was a really important um, learning piece for me. And and I love that you brought up um, the focus on you know, those whose needs have been marginalized and whose voices haven't been heard. Um, and it's interesting because uh, when it comes to the the background, I guess I'll just get to this part. When it comes to my background in this work, it really uh, started for me with several people in my life who challenged me and pushed me to look at parts of myself, my identity, my view of the world, um, my limited sort of scope of understanding other people's experiences. That sort of tipped me over the edge of curiosity, just like, what am I not seeing? What am I not aware of? Um, and in what ways is my positionality as a white cis hetero man um, making it challenging for me to empathize and recognize more of the reality of people's lived experiences in the world. Um, and so as I was pushed and challenged, uh, I was also very defensive and uncomfortable and resistant. And in those experiences, I got to notice the fear that tends to take over in the space of the unknown when we're in this gap between who we know ourselves to be actually being reflected back to us. Um, <clears throat> and so I noticed that my intentions and my impacts were really not often so aligned um, and that there was an opportunity to bring that into closer balance. And so the work is sparked by really a number of different people, including uh, BIPOC folks in my life, but also even white men who pushed me and challenged me and invited me to grow. And through that process, I noticed that I had a lot of learning to do, first of all, that I could learn from other white men in this work, rather than just thinking that I needed to learn from folks who were most impacted. Of course, I also need to do that. But that there was an opportunity to actually do healing work and, uh, and do that work with other white men in ways that support our own engagement in the broader DEI movement. Mm -hmm. No, I think that is, thank you. That I think that's a really well said summary of honestly that path that, I mean, awareness, this type of awareness specifically in my experience just does, does, comes with bumps, I guess I'll put it. <laughs> there's, a lot, there's always a lot of bumps. And um, yeah, I feel like it's really worth it that you know, the, the world that I'm interested in living in is more reflected by the work you're talking about than by the, but it's not always comfortable. And it's interesting to me, how do you confront that? I mean, I know you've got a way that you do it in yourself based on what you just said, but when you're working with someone and they're in that place of like wanting to push away the discomfort, which is a completely understandable reaction, what's your, do you have a methodology or a, a set of tools you offer? Or how do you, mm -hmm. how do you work with that? Well, I always come back to my own experience and I say, mm -hmm. I've been here. I'm still here quite often. Um, and I share stories like here's this time when I messed up and was called out or called in. Here's how I felt. Um, and just 
be vulnerable, you know, lead by example so that others can see that it's okay to be messy, to make mistakes, even to cause harm. So long as we're learning and growing and integrating uh, that learning to change behavior. And so it's really about overcoming the, the fear, which I think manifests in perfectionism, at least it certainly did for me a lot, um, is sort of trying to get it right. And if I didn't feel like I knew the right answer, then disengaging altogether. Mm-hmm. And I think that all or nothing mentality, sort of binary thinking of good and bad and right and wrong is very much part of domination-based culture and domination consciousness, um, if you will. And so to shift out of that into more of a partnership-based culture, um, you know, what Bell Hooks sometimes talks about is uh, being in partnership-based cultural relationships with each other where we, um, it's not about a zero-sum game of you versus me, your needs versus my needs, but it's actually about all of us equitably meeting our needs in community and relationship. That's possible. Mm -hmm. Um, And I didn't actually even imagine it until uh, learning from some of the leaders in this work, because my awareness was simply stuck in sort of a zero sum game mentality. Um, And I needed to really break that down and deconstruct it in order to imagine a different future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. When it's, it's a, a distinction that I have found helpful sometimes is that the difference between the personal and the systemic, like, you know, the, a, a colleague of mine ran for Senate a couple years ago and in Colorado, we have a large oil and gas industry. And she was really clear, like we need to provide job transition training change management, if you will, if we're going to move away from oil and gas. And she goes, we can't keep blaming people for it. She's like, I drove a car to this interview. Like, I don't have a choice, (laughs) but I did, right? Like the system is the way it is. And there's a lot we can try and do. And like you said, like if we're, if we live in this world that we're, we're constantly inundated with messages of the importance of domination and hierarchies, um, that that makes it it can make it more difficult to access these other options and and that's for me part of why a lot of the work that i do this and then my my consulting and and the nonprofits and groups that i work with is really saying i just i want people to have a choice you can't have a choice if there's just one way (laughs) Mm -hmm. i want people to have a choice and i think if more people have a choice we'll see more things working in 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 ways that people don't expect but you can't create what you can't imagine so we have to start with presenting those options. Mm-hmm. Um, so it feels really aligned. I'd like, like, I'm very excited to see this. It's a friend of mine a few years ago posted a question right after the first blush of like the resurgence of Me Too. And they said, what is positive masculinity? And I was like, mm-hmm. I cannot answer that question. <laughs> That's bad. And I think about mm-hmm. this stuff. <laughs> Yeah, And I had, I ended up having a, a few of my friend, male colleagues come on our other show and actually talk about what is positive masculinity. And they all had some answers, but they all said this similar struggle of like, oh, okay, we really have to start giving people something to work towards because this is not enough. So that's, I was like, I love this. I've seen a few other groups. I feel like there's a, there's a consciousness around this that I don't feel was here a few years ago. But what's your experience of that? Do you think this is like a, a new enlivened thought process or a fact? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I well, hope it's 
<laughs> I don't think it's a fad. Um, I think that it is a fledgling movement and mm -hmm. that it is one that is finally um, gaining more ground in, in a way that sees itself not in opposition to feminism, but actually in collaboration with feminist thought. Um, you know, it's, you look at the men's movement broadly, there are a couple different wings of it or elements. There's like full on feminist men's movement. There's mythopoetic men's movement. There's men's rights movement kind of on the far side. Um, and, you know, I think when you look at the far right side, so you look at um, men's rights movement, it's a lot of sort of claiming the victim status and sort of um, trying to gain power by positioning oneself in opposition to other groups. Uh, on the far left side, it's a lot about abdicating power. How do I become invisible or minimize my impact to such an extreme that maybe my masculinity no longer even feels like part of me that's safe? Mm -hmm. So I feel I feel most connected to sort of that middle realm, the mythopoetic element of men's movement that really supports an exploration of masculinity from a male body perspective without saying that's all there is, mm -hmm. but actually being in a broader conversation. And so I don't actually believe in the concept of positive masculinity or healthy masculinity, because okay. again, that moves us into the binary thinking of mm -hmm. positive or negative, healthy or unhealthy. I don't think it's something you attain. I think it's something you practice. Mm -hmm. And so I like to think of it as healthier masculinity or as wholehearted masculinity, which is really, you know, it's not a singular thing. Like traditional, you know, conceptions of masculinity are about, are all about this sort of man box of acceptable male behavior, as Tony Porter would put it, um, wholehearted masculinities, plural, are just as diverse and incredible as there are people who identify with masculine energy in the world. And so to be able to claim outside of that narrow confine of, of what's been deemed masculine and acceptable, the set of heteronormative, cisnormative worldview is actually there's this powerful opportunity to say i am masculine or i value my masculinity and here's what that looks like for me and mm -hmm. to decouple that from this power over paradigm into a power with paradigm where we can actually cultivate true partnership in the struggle for more equity and dignity and safety in the world sign me up i love it <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I don't mean you're quite crook, but no, that's great. That makes me so. You do. I like, I very much. This is much everybody. <laughs> well, and now, so when I, I, my kids are grown and, but I, um, like many, many people of my generation read a lot of child development books. Cause I was like, yeah, I know that the way this happened for me is probably not what I want to repeat. Right. So <laughs> let's look at what the psychologists are up to and see if I can make some different choices. Um, but one of the things that super struck me is that when they were in elementary school, I was reading like books about middle school development and I had a male body and a female body child. And so I was reading books about both. And I was like, this is so intriguing because all it, it's very clear from the, the things that I'm reading that this is the point at which we decide culturally that women are allowed to have all emotions, but anger and men are allowed to have only anger as an emotion. And 
because it was younger, I would say they also get lust, like men get lust and anger, and that's how they're allowed to touch, which explains a lot. And I'm obviously speaking broad brush, but it was just reading all of this and seeing like, wow, like we really do start to to kind of punish people for having the wrong emotions when, as you said, this wholehearted thing, it really speaks to that concern I had as a mother, like I don't, both of my children are full beings. They, they should get to be the whole thing. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And yet I can see already from what I'm, you know, experiencing and reading, they're going to get feedback that this doesn't belong to them because Mm -hmm. of someone else's perception of their gender. It's, I mean, and you're a parent, you're a parent too. So you probably have your own uh, place there, but it was like what you're talking about, that wholehearted piece, it feels so important because we are full people, and and I can see that a lot of the ways in which we socially struggle, and I would say in business as well, comes down to maybe some where you know people are trying to squish themselves into something that's not real. So of course they they get upset or cranky or passive aggressive or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's not it's not functional. Um, yeah. I mean, I guess it is function. We function there, but it's maybe not optimal. <laughs> it's not human. You know, yeah. it's not. It's not actually reflecting the wholeness of who we are and what we're capable of contributing in the world. And, and it's interesting that you mentioned these acceptable little boxes of behavior mm-hmm. based on gender conditioning. And I would say now we flip those on their head and you talk about, you know, with Me Too movement, with a lot of other recent um, issues, men expressing anger, not really okay. Men expressing lust gets them in a lot of trouble. Women expressing emotions other than, you know, anger or assertiveness is seen as feminine, overly feminine or weak or like, you know, not fully engaged in terms of leadership rather than recognizing different leadership styles that are just as effective and complementary. And so there's a way in which like we're actually smashing all the parts of who we are, not just finding these boxes anymore like we used to decades ago, but actually there's less and less room for us, even inside those boxes. And so I think the pressure has built to the point where we need to break out of those boxes and we need to claim a collective sense of liberation where we can say together, we can all be more of who we are than we can possibly be in opposition to one another. And that's what I stand for. Thank you. Thank you. I like, that's amazing. I, I'm so glad there's you're doing this and that it's because it feels like I am excited about finding things we can do to create a world that works for everybody. And um, I, this gentleman uh, that I work with, he he did a, a talk on what he calls feminine principled leadership. And um, one of the things that, that he brought up in that was men and women are here to stay. Like it's, there's not a way that we win this without each other. <laughs> and it's, I'm like, yeah, I knew that, but I don't think I ever heard anyone say it that direct it's like yes you're right like this is really when you say no zero-sum game what you really mean is no zero-sum game (laughs) this is like we're all here doing this right and so we have to find a way that actually works and and i think you know what you're speaking to that the box is getting flipped i think it's like any period of transition you sort of are in the soup right like we're like the butterfly in the cocoon right we're become a little soup but it's a very unsettling time i think people my experience of like my own experiences and the people that I talk to at, at that level of depth is that, like you said, there's a lot of fear that um, they don't know what to do. 
And it's not even, it's not always ego-based. Like I'm afraid because I'm being wrong is bad. Like there's that too, but there's also this, like, I don't want to be this bad thing. I don't want to, to behave in a way that makes people feel scared and yucky. And the, and the direction that they've, they've taken in seems to be sort of, I need to, like you said, be small or hide or be invisible. And, and that's not really great in my opinion either. Like mm-hmm. I think we need that middle ground where people can make mistakes. <laughs> um, and yet also go through a genuine process, right? Which I don't think we have uh, in, in terms of a, a larger cultural set of expectations. I think there's pockets of places where people learn that. Um, where do you think, I mean, obviously, let's say someone's watching this and they're, you know, and they're like, we're listening on the podcast, the audio version, and they're like, whoa, I want to get involved with with this. Do, do, do they take a workshop? Do they hire you? Do they take a self-assessment? What's their what's their process here? Yeah, well, there are a couple ways to engage. Um, I offer workshops basically every month and mm-hmm. have various guests. And so uh, I think the first of November is the next workshop and there'll be future ones as well. Um, so that's a great way to just dive in and just get a feel for what kind of work I do and, and how that sort of how I talk about it. Um, but of course, happy to hop on a call with, with somebody who's interested, talk about potential partnership. And really what it comes down to is what are your, what are your struggles right now? You know, like what are some of the things that feel like they're getting in the way of the full effectiveness of your DEI initiatives? Um, the full effectiveness of your culture initiatives that are supporting your people to feel a sense of belonging, um, to bring out their best selves, to do their best work, and to build a culture of psychological safety where people aren't afraid to be vulnerable, where we see that as an asset, where we see feedback as a gift, not as a threat to a, a solid sense of self, but really as yeah, like a gift to an evolving, ever-growing sense of self. And so... I, I love working with people who think of themselves as lifelong learners, who are open and interested and yet committed to values that, uh, that guide what they do and want to live those values more deeply. And so that's, yeah, that's largely kind of the entry point. And then we just explore um, how can I support with what your specific needs are. I should have asked this earlier. I have a little getting to know you question, um, which is, so what hobby of yours or interest do you think would surprise or most surprise the folks you know? The folks I know. Oh, that's interesting. (laughs) Hmm. Let's see. Well, something that not everybody knows about me is I, I used to produce music. So I used to have a lot of fun, um, making beats, writing lyrics, you know, um, crafting songs. And I've always loved music. And so it became an outlet for me, especially as, as a young person, as a teenager uh, and into my 20s of like putting my thoughts and feelings into this creative medium as a way of almost like journaling um, so that I could process some of my experiences. Uh, and that's something that continues to be a passion today, though it's certainly not uh, something I spend as much time on anymore. Is it, is it out there? Can people go find you on Spotify or is this more like a friends and family thing? 
Uh, it's a little more friends and family. I think you can find some of my stuff, but I don't necessarily recommend looking for it. <laughs> I feel a little self-conscious now a decade or two later. But Yeah, no, it's true, right? I, I write and occasionally I think, oh, I'm going to pull that down. That's more that's more information that I want to share. And at the time, it didn't feel like I felt super obscure. But no, no, no. Um, mm-hmm. So, and where do you go for inspiration? Like the work that you're doing can be draining, um, you know, so what, what do you do to keep yourself motivated, energized around this? A couple places. So one is men's work. I've been participating in and leading men's work for almost the past decade. And so um, sitting in those spaces with men where we can talk about our lives and explore more deeply um, pain and challenge and celebration and um, change it's a really powerful place to feel resourced in the work. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my partnership, my marriage is a place that I go to connect, to be challenged, to be supported um, intellectually, emotionally, etc. And I see all the work around partnership-based culture rooting in my primary partnership, because if I'm not practicing it there, then how could I possibly support others to practice it in their workplace right um and so i always look for not how do i do it perfectly because again we don't want to get caught in that trap but how do i continue to lean in to my own learning and growth in my primary partnership and let the the learning and the being from that place uh come through in all the work that i do so those are two places and then i also have an advisory council that uh, supports me and holds me accountable. Um, I have a, uh, BIPOC DEI leader in Denver who I work with as an accountability partner pretty explicitly. And so I'm always looking for that combination of what is it to be proactively accountable, not just reactively accountable. And what is it to be supported rather than try to go it alone? Because mm-hmm. those two pieces are critically important, especially for me, I think as a white man engaging in the work. Um, and it's, it's only through a lot of trial and error that I've even kind of come to this understanding. Mm-hmm. Thank you. That's really great. Those are good suggestions too, like to really create that opportunity for listening and to be involved in that. And it's, I think you're right. Like, especially for folks that can be perceived as being part of dominant culture, whether they feel affiliated or not, making mm-hmm. sure to be engaged in that proactive accountability. I like that term. I haven't heard it before. Hmm. I think that's a really thoughtful way to talk about it. Um, So thank you. What, um, what do you think would be different in the world? Like if you achieve your vision for the work that you're doing, what do you see as being different? It could be a small thing or big thing, but like, what does that look like for you? So take the example. I think the story came out a week or two ago about, the CEO and the founder of Patagonia, an outdoor Mm -hmm. apparel company, and how he was actually giving away his three some odd billion dollar company to charity, to nonprofits, basically, um, and not taking all that wealth for himself or his family, um, but finding a way to give back to uh, the communities that actually make his company relevant, which is natural environments and beautiful outdoors and the earth, right? And so mm-hmm. um, that money is going back to fight climate change and to support communities who are adapting 
to the already hugely disruptive, uh, you know, manifestations of climate change. And so I'm looking for leaders like that. And I don't mean people who are like, who've done that, but people who hold that same spark in them, who say, I know that this isn't just about money. I know that this just isn't just about power or status or image. There's something deeper than the ego here. And it's not that the ego is wrong or that power, money, status, privilege, like all that stuff is fine. It's great. It's part of the journey. Mm -hmm. But there's something deeper tugging at them. And it's that little tug of like, you're here for a reason. And there's something you can do through the power of business, um, through the platform of business to make the world just a little bit safer, a little bit more equitable, a little bit more position, better positioned to thrive. Mm -hmm. um, and, and largely these are white male leaders who I'm, I feel like I'm best positioned to work with. Um, and they often have really good intentions and, um, really good values. And yet sometimes feel a little stuck when it comes to like really deeply engaging in the DEI work and recognizing the way that that work begins from within mm -hmm. and isn't just about a checklist of things to be done. Mm -hmm. And so that is really who I most love working with. Mm -hmm. And it's not, like I said, it's not some grand thing you have to achieve to be that kind of person, um, like the founder of Patagonia, but it's something that could be, I really believe is in each of us. It's just that for some of us, it's ready to be supported, to sort of manifest in a way that um, can deliver big impact in our organizations, in our culture, the way we lead, the way we live, the way we relate to other people. And for others, maybe it's more dormant and that's great. It's fine. We all have our timing. So, um, yeah, I really believe in just the basic goodness of human beings and the potential of each person to contribute meaningfully to building a more diverse and equitable workplace. Nice. Um, so I don't know if you've ever done this where someone asks you for advice and you say something and as it's coming out of your mouth, you're like, that was super smart. Uh, <laughs> I don't know where it came from. So this question is, what's your, what's the best advice that either you've received or you heard coming out of your mouth and then like, Oh, I need to listen to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So much. Um, first thing that comes to mind is, uh, one of my favorite quotes of all time, which is a quote by James Baldwin. He says, not everything that is faced can be changed, but mm -hmm. nothing can be changed until it is faced. Yeah. And I really love that because to me, it, it hints at the fact that this isn't about achieving some endpoint. Sure. We all want to live in a safer, more equitable world, or many of us want to, and we're working toward that. I shouldn't say we all, but, um, what I will say is like, it's not so much about whether we reach that endpoint as it is, who are we being on the journey there mm -hmm. and who, how are we showing up in ourselves and with each other that is already there, mm -hmm. you know? There's, there's a there-ness, if you will, that's just, it's available in each moment, mm -hmm. even if the destination feels so far away, like many lifetimes. And so how do we practice being there already with mm -hmm. ourselves, with each other, just in who we're being and how we're showing up? And I think Baldwin does a great job of inviting that by recognizing we can't count on uh, change happening or when it will happen, mm -hmm. but just by engaging in that process and facing it. That is, that is the journey. Thanks. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have a, um, I was a 
studied the with a Buddhist um, group for a while, and the Chogyam Trumpa book, "The Path Is the Goal," like that feeling of if you know you got to focus on for me anyway, and it sounds like we're aligned in this. Focus on how you get there, and and that's actually also a trick to be to being joyful, actually, because if you can focus on what you're doing and the journey. The journey, as you say, like some journeys, like raising a kid, that's 20 years easily. <laughs> like if you're always looking at the, you know, you're like, eh. but if you're just like here experiencing that, it's a, it's a different level of uh, appreciation and joy. It, uh, and it's a mindset that both I think allows for growth. And yet also when you can be there gives some of that sustaining inspiration as well. Cause you can have some of those experiences. Um, <laughs> You remind so when you're talking about Patagonia, actually, um, that story came out right around when I met uh, a woman named uh, Melanie Reback. Uh, she actually c- founded a company eight years ago and has a startup incubator for people doing what she calls stewardship ownership, and it's very mm-hmm. similar to what Patagonia chose to do, but from the beginning. And as part of this incubator, you uh, boot camp incubator, you go through what you're talking about. We have to understand who you are because business is so much of a part of your life. You need to make sure you're doing something that you can genuinely be in yeah. or it's not, especially if you're doing a startup, like that's going to be your whole life. <laughs> it's a baby. <laughs> and, uh, and I thought, well, like, so once again, that, you know, that awareness of there are people who are doing it and, and there's ways to do it. How do we get those models out there and make people feel comfortable embracing them or give them a chance to feel comfortable? I guess can't make people do anything, but give them a chance to find their own comfort with it. And to feel like that it's okay that they want to share. Because I feel like I've seen that. And I, the men in my life have expressed feeling more pressure. Um, that like there's a certain type of success that's about winning. Mm-hmm. That if you don't want as a man or a perceived man can cause you. Maybe you can speak to that. I don't know. I just feel like they've talked about it as being kind of like the fact that they, they're not interested in a ladder climb. Like they want to mm-hmm. have a fulfilling life with their family. And they're happy to have a good job, but they're not like, I want to win job. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, do you, do you see the people struggling with that? Or is that just more anecdotal stuff that. I see that. Yeah. yeah. Broadly speaking, I think that's still very entrenched in our business culture generally is like the idea that you need to climb the ladder and there's real value in pursuing your dreams and advancing in ways that corporate and startup environments support. And at the same time, we have to sit back every once in a while, I think, and just ask the question, when I'm on my deathbed and I'm looking back on my life, what is going to be important to me? What am I going to look at and say, I wish I had done more of that? And what am I going to look back and say, you know, I wish I hadn't done so much of that? Mm-hmm. And I think they've done research about this. There's, there's incredible um, research around people focusing on relationships like that's what matters most in people's lives Mm -hmm. um it's not what was your title when you died or how much money did you have you know that makes you happy or makes you feel fulfilled so the question is are we living our lives and sort of a life that's ghost-written by systems of oppression that's sort of um not our own where the story and the entire narrative is just something that we thought we had to do but is never truly who we are are we going to settle for that life or are we going to say, no, thanks. Like I'm ready to write my own narrative. I'm ready to live my own story. I'm here for a bigger reason, just like we all are. 
Let's connect around that. Let's build a network around that. And let's together realize what it really means to live a fulfilled, you know, impactful life on this earth. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's it. Like, let's get that out there. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm really excited about what you're up to. Um, you said you, your next, you have a, a workshop in November that people can sign up for. They can follow you on LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. um, and then this is your, your website. I'm going to read it for our listeners. It's danmolly.com. No, no, no. I'm <laughs> danmolly.com. That's D-A-N-M-A-H-L-E. And then uh, also it'll be in the show notes on that so that folks can find you there. Um, and I'm really excited. I hope that, that we get a chance to chat again. This was great. Uh, any last things you want to say any, to folks or? Just appreciate you hosting the space and appreciate a lot of the alignment that I see in our work in the world. And um, yeah, my suggestion to folks listening who are interested in this conversation is like, let's talk, you know, let's have a conversation. Let's love to hear more about what people are grappling with. Um, and also just to put out a few resources that I think have been really meaningful on my journey and could be helpful for others. Um, one is Bell Hooks, her book, The Will to Change Men, Masculinity and Love. And another is Resma Menicum's book, My Grandmother's Hands. Um, and then Leticia Nieto has a book called Beyond Inclusion, Beyond Empowerment. Um, those are a few resources that I like to put forward because they've been instrumental in the way that I think about this work and they continue to be important teachers and guides on the journey. So yeah, thanks for having me here. It's really nice to join your uh, show. Yeah, then those are great. And I'll find links uh, for those books as well and pop them in the notes. So if people, if you're listening and you're interested, yeah, you might need to go to the website to, to click it, but that way you don't have to, don't pause while you're driving. <laughs> <That's all I'm laughs> Just don't do that. I, I do that sometimes and it's not good. Um, and then on Monday, I'm going to pop this up real quick. We're going to have uh, Robin Alexander, uh, Melanated Moms of Children with Autism. Uh, Robin's story is amazing. I've only gotten the, the short version of it. And um, I can't wait to have her on to talk about what she's up to and the work that she's doing around neurodiversity and racism and the ways in which that intersected in her experience to create really unique challenges as well as unique opportunities that she was able to see and is now seeking to provide guidance for other folks on that on a journey that's similar so excited to have her on a monday and thank you so much i uh, appreciate you being here today dan and i look forward to talking to you more i feel like there's a lot of places we could overlap and and i love passing on good stuff to folks so mm. thanks so much Aisula. good to be right. here thank you Doo -doo -doo.